Hey detective, welcome to the Nancy Drew Rendezvous, a podcast where we take a chronological look at all the books in the Nancy Drew Files series. I'm your host Teagues and today's book is book number 26, Playing With Fire. Hey detectives, I hope you're all well. I'm going great. I finally finished the Nancy Girl, uh, Nancy Girl, Nancy Drew Girl Detective book, uh, number one, Without a Trace. It was it was all right. Um, it's really weird to read Nancy in first person. Um, I'm so used to it being like us looking into Nancy, but this time it's we're seeing what goes on in Nancy's head. Um, yeah, that's the case was a bit silly, you know, who's destroying zucchinis and who stole a a, a valuable egg. But yeah, I don't know. It's fun. It's Nancy Drew. I liked it. It's modern. I definitely like the more modern books over the older books. Uh, Yeah, I don't really have much more to say about it. Except that I love that Bess is very mechanical minded and how George loves the internet. I really like how they brought those two new interesting parts of Bess and George into the series. So today we're going to be discussing book number 26, Playing With Fire. It came out in August 1988. And as usual, we'll talk about some events that happened in August 1988. And the most interesting one I could find was that on the 8th of August 1988 in New York City, the temperature hit a high of 88 degrees Fahrenheit. And according to the Chinese, the 8th of August 1988, so the date would be written 8888, is the luckiest day of the century. So that's pretty cool. We're not going to have another one of those days for a long while. Also in August 1988, IBM introduced software for artificial intelligence. 1988 was such a long time ago and we barely had personal computers in our home. I did. I had a Mac, an Apple Mac 2GS back then and I remember playing uh, Tetris on it a lot and other kid games. Um, a lot of people in America played Oregon Trail. Um, I've never played that. It wasn't a thing in Australia, but I see heaps of people online being nostalgic about it. Uh, Monkey by George Michael and Roll With It by Steve Winwood were the top of the Billboard Top 100 charts. Casey Mugrave and Beatrice, a princess of York, were both born in 1988. So let's get straight into the book and with the cover discussion. Nancy again is wearing a terrible, terrible outfit. She's wearing like white pants and a terrible yellow looking shirt and behind her is a guy in gray slacks and a blue shirt. He's quite attractive. Like usual, he's dark and handsome. So we know that Nancy likes the dark and handsome types. I wonder if he's going to sweep Nancy off of her feet. And in the background, we've got Nancy um, trying to put out a fire and the fire is actually on a red gown uh, and a lady with dark short hair is wearing it. So I'm going to assume that might actually be George wearing it, but I guess we will find out when we go through the book. And having said that, let's get into it. Okay, so in the last book, we were in New York City, and this time we're headed to the opposite side of the country. The girls are heading to Los Angeles, flying no other than Victory Airlines. And if we remember, that was the airline that Bess and Nancy went undercover at back in book 14, I believe, Wings of Fear. I hope they mention the small little details like the black and gold uniform. I just love when they really remember small details about other books. 
Uh, I don't know if you can recall, but Bess and the pilot, Mark, kind of had a thing for each other. Well, while Nancy and George are relaxing in first class, Bess is up in the cockpit with Mark. Can you remember when that used to happen? I have never had the privilege of going in an aeroplane cockpit. And these days, after all the terrible events events that have happened in the past, I don't think they're going to allow us to ever go into the cockpits again, which is quite sad. I mean, kids used to love it. And I was, I never went on a plane until I was 18. So I, yeah, I never got the chance. Well, it could still happen. Anyway, so why are they going to Los Angeles? It turns out the president of Victory Airlines was so impressed with Nancy's work that he's called her back to solve another mystery, this time a fire at the Los Angeles branch branch rather of the Victory Hotel. Turns out that there was a fire in the vault and it burned all the cash receipts and a precious miniature portrait of Napoleon. This airline sure does like dealing with antiques and valuable goods, don't they? Last time it was like a smuggling ring of vases and jade figurines and whatnot. So it's quite unusual to have a fire inside of the vault. So obviously Mr. Talbot believes it was done on purpose and has brought Nancy in to investigate. And just to make things a little bit more difficult, the owner of the miniature portrait of Napoleon received an extortion note the night before. So the reason why he put it in the vault was so it would be safe, but clearly it wasn't safe in the vault. Mr. Talbot doesn't want the police involved because there is a society gala that's being held the next week and we know that this guy hates bad publicity. I think people back in the 80s worried too much about bad publicity. It's not like someone's going to find out and put it on Twitter and then everyone's going to find out instantly. It's like maybe there'll be a small column in the newspaper. And I don't know how many people read the newspaper back then. I'm sure it wasn't everybody. Uh, But then there's the town gossips. But this is also Los Angeles. So it's a huge town and everyone's kind of like wrapped up in themselves because it's the center of Hollywood. And when I say everyone, I don't mean everyone. But, you know, it's just the stereotype of Los Angeles that everyone stuck up actors and movie stars. So if you live in L.A., detective, I'm not talking about you. Um, I hope I didn't offend you. And anyway, they land in Los Angeles and Mr. Talbot is temporarily located himself to Los Angeles while he tries to figure out what happened at the vault. He greets them warmly and with him is Brent Kinkard, who is the owner of the portrait and co-owner along with his father of Kincaid Studios. Because they were talking about art in a portrait, when I first read Kincaid Studios, I thought it was an an artist studio, but it's actually a movie-making studio, which makes sense because they're in Los Angeles. Uh, Brent is also staying at the hotel because there's renovations happening at his house. Now, as usual, Nancy has to describe, well, not Nancy describes, but the author of the book describes what the guy looks like. And of course, he sounds like a babe. He's tall, deeply tanned, and with dark hair and intense eyes. Not normal eyes, intense. Will Bess fawn over him, or will she be too smitten with Mark? After flattering Nancy, Brett heads off to make a call. They make some jokes about LA and the crazy fashions, and then they go and get their bags. George's outfit which she feels underdressed in, consists of peg pants, black ankle boots, and an oversized blue cotton sweater. She's upset because she feels like she's not classy enough for Los Angeles, but I think that outfit sounds amazing. I was actually surprised by George's outfit because I always assume she's wearing jeans or active gear, but then I just remembered that they flew first class, so of course they dressed up a little bit. 
all of a sudden, Bess smells smoke and Nancy's tote bag is on fire. It's only the end of chapter one and this book is already living up to its name. Someone had put a bomb in Nancy's bag. She manages to throw it outside before it goes off, which expels a cloud of white smoke. Nancy thankfully gets off easy. If it was current time, she'll probably be charged with terrorism. She's, however, really confused that there's no trace of whatever is left of the bomb. Brent returns from his calls. Oh, I bet it was Brent that dropped the device in Nancy's bag and then walked away to detonate it. He's definitely my suspect number one. Maybe he destroyed his own portrait to get back at his father. Who knows? But this is my initial theory that it's Brent. They all head to the hotel. The girls are staying in the executive suite. Fancy, but I'm guessing not as fancy as the Plaza penthouse from the previous book. The girls start devising a plan on how to tackle the mystery, which includes talking to the chief of hotel security and then a lunch with Brent. Nancy already considers him a suspect. Yep, so do I, Nancy. Uh, And she figures that his Napoleon portrait was probably insured for big bucks, so it's an insurance scam. George is going to talk to the vault clerk and Bess is having lunch with her pilot and she'll help out later. All of a sudden, Bess walks in with a newspaper and it reads, Flaming Napoleon still unsolved. Wealthy book collector Amanda Hyde Porter is still mourning the loss of her valuable manuscript, Napoleon and Josephine. The original handwritten draft of Francois Lamont's famous play was mysteriously burned last week while it was under close security in her Bel Air mansion. Police confess they have no clues in this baffling case. All right, so two fires have damaged napoleon related valuables so somebody must really hate napoleon i guess uh for those who are unfamiliar with napoleon he was a french military general and he was also the first emperor of france he's a very huge historical figure at lunch after learning nothing from the hotel security except the cash receipts were there all week and the painting was placed in the vault not even eight hours prior to when it caught on fire there was no trace of what started the fire which is interesting because there was no trace of the bomb that was in Nancy's bag. So there's some kind of connecting clue there. Brent also tells Nancy about his extortion note. Uh, They're eating at a restaurant, and I just like mentioning what Nancy's eating. Um, She's actually having a salad and a watercress soup. Uh, (laughs) Brent actually suggested the ink squid and a duck salad, but Nancy kind of turned her nose up to that, which was quite weird. Brent tells Nancy that the extortion note demanded $1 million in 24 hours or bye-bye to the Napoleon portrait. The note was written on grey paper with a red border and that he shouldn't be counted as a suspect because the painting wasn't insured. Sure, he claims that, but he easily could be lying, so he's definitely still a suspect for me. He then tells Nancy that if the hotel's insurance pays out, he'll donate the money to charity And I guess that helps him clear his name because even if the hotel pays him out, he still doesn't want the money. Nancy asks him if there's anyone out to get him and we learn about an antique shop owner who seems more interested um, in selling than collecting. His name is Peter Wellington. He was bothering Brent for days prior to sell the portrait to him. So this guy, yeah, seems that he really wants to buy everything. Nancy tells Brent about the burnt manuscript and asks if they could be associated um, to one another because they both got burnt and they both um, involved Napoleon. He says that he knows Amanda and can organize a meeting with her. 
So their lunch is all of a sudden interrupted by an insurance investigator called Aline Ellsworth. Nancy is really worried that this Aline Ellsworth lady will interfere in the case. They head off to visit Amanda Hyde Porter in Bel Air that evening and Bess is like so squealing about movie stars living nearby. Amanda is described as young with shiny dark hair and airs of sophistication. Amanda tells them that she was planning on selling the manuscript and that she got an extortion note, same paper, same request. She organized protection for it, but it didn't work. It was gone the next day. She's upset because she could have sold it for more than what the insurance covered. All of a sudden, a red-haired woman storms in the room in a panic. She too has received a note, a message, but this time is after the Empress's Flame, which is a dress worn by none other than Josephine, who was Napoleon's wife. So this extortionist is after a third piece of Napoleon's goodies. I wonder what they want. This is quite weird. Someone really hates Napoleon. Nancy is given a copy of the extortion note to keep and they make a plan to replicate the dress so if the extortionist wants to burn this one, they'll be burning a fake dress. Also, a million dollars or the dress will be destroyed. That seems kind of weird. I feel as though the dress would be worth so much more than that. The extortionist clearly doesn't care about money, just like Brent. Hmm, maybe there's a connection there. Like, A 200-year-old dress, maybe more. I can't remember what years Napoleon was around, but I think something that valuable would be worth way more than a million dollars. So, yeah, this extortionist is weird. Uh, Nancy suggests a police guard, but that upsets Diana. Diana is the lady who uh, owns the Empress's dress. And Nancy instead is tasked with looking after the dress. Sure, that's a great idea. Give a famous relic to an 18-year-old to look after. These people, more money than cents. More dollars than cents, actually. (laughs) Amanda has also asked if there's anyone she could think of who is capable of this. And we learn of Professor Nicole Ronsard, who hates Napoleon more than anything in the world. Well, okay, we know that this person seems to not like them. And if this professor lady doesn't like Napoleon, then that makes sense. And then Bess was all like, bless her heart. (laughs) What a weirdo. Dude's been dead for like hundreds of years. (laughs) I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. I love Bess. (laughs) She's just, she's, she's adorable. Anyway, the reason why she hates Napoleon is it turns out this lady can trace her family back to the time of Napoleon and supposedly one of her ancestors was tortured by Napoleon. Okay, this seems wild, but it will be interesting to meet her and see what she has to say. The next day, the crew are in Venice and it's the quintessential Venice of the late 80s with rollerblades and skateboards and muscle men galore. They find Peter Wellington's antique shop, but it doesn't open till 11, so they have a lemonade on the boardwalk while they wait. And Bess, of course, is swooning at all the tanned surfers. Bess, what about Pilot Mark? Have you forgot about him already? (laughs) The store opens. At least that's what Nancy believes after seeing a handsome dark beard young man step out of it. Uh, The man looks around quickly as if to be sure he wasn't being followed and then disappears around a corner. So the girls head inside and inside is what you would imagine an old antique shop to look like. It's musty, filled with old clocks, trinkets, books and a huge painting of our main man, Napoleon. Suddenly a man appears with an antique musket asking the girls what they are doing in his shop. That would be like such a shock, you know, meeting someone and it's like all of a sudden they've got like a gun in your face. How crazy. 
He puts the gun down and introduces himself as Peter Wellington. He's in his 60s with grey wispy hair and a beard. After Nancy explains why she's there, Peter just laughs and says it's a case of retribution. Turns out that Brent should have never have owned it in the first place. He simply won it in a poker game from Sheikh Abadala, who lives in the most expensive house in Malibu. Is this the Sheikh's claim to fame? He just lives in the most expensive house in Malibu. And plus, how do people know this? Do they keep like tabs on who owns the like most expensive house? People need... I don't know, whatever. Anyway, we learned that Brent is a playboy gambler. Maybe he really is desperate for money and just lying about saying he doesn't need it. It makes sense. People with addictions lie to hide them. Anyway, it suggested that Nancy speak to the Sheikh. He probably didn't like losing the painting and can offer some more information. As for Peter Wellington's feelings about the destroyed Napoleon painting, he's sad about seeing it destroyed, but whatever, it is what it is. He tells the girls the man Nancy saw coming out of the shop also asked about the painting. He wanted to know who the other Napoleon collectors in the area were. He told them about Diana and Amanda. Peter tells the girls, yes, he's offered to purchase the dress and the manuscript, but would have never have torched them. So who is this mystery person and why are they so interested in Napoleon and want to damage his goods? Could it be the professor that they're going to meet later? So remember how Diana didn't want the police guard for the dress and it was up to Nancy to do it because she was having a party? Well, it's party day and the girls are all ready to head to Diana's party. Bess is wearing a figure-hugging peach dress. Peach was really huge in the late 80s, hey, (laughs) Um, with gold clips in her hair. George is rocking a red jumpsuit and red sandals while Nancy is in white linen pants with a gold top. Out of the three, I think George is the winner with her outfit. So Nancy is wearing the outfit that she was wearing on the cover. So she looks absolutely ridiculous in my mind because that outfit is ugly. Diana greets him in a leopard print dress, which seems to be the staple of older women. Like not only now, but back in the day, older women just love leopard print. Diana's mansion is huge and is full of artwork. Diana claims she would sell it if she could, but her uncle Samuel forbids it. They head upstairs and are introduced to the babysitting assignment, the Empress's Flame. It's described as a bare-shouldered gown which was made of flame-coloured satin with a subtle pattern woven into it. It has a high waistline and short puffed sleeves. An ornament gold brooch shaped like a crown was fastened to the bodice. They can't believe that the dress is 200 years old, but learn the one they are looking at is the actual fake that's going to trick the extortionist. When showed the real one, they could also not believe it's 200 years old as it feels too new. Diane heads back to the party and the girls are left alone with the dress, the real one. They have this brilliant idea to try it on. It's too small for Bess, so George gets the honours. This, of course, doesn't end well. The dress goes up in flames, just like the cover. In fact, this might be the only second time we've seen George on the cover. The first time was in Case 16, Never Say Die. I've just had another look at the cover, and this is exactly how I pictured George in my head, just with a more stylish cut. Like, the haircut that she has on the cover of this book is just not cool, not cool. It's, like, too old for such a young girl. Nancy manages to put out the fire with a rug, but dizzy from the smoke inhalation, George stumbles to the balcony and over the railing and into the pool. (laughs) Oh, goodness. I shouldn't laugh, but really, what a comedy of errors. It's just, I can just imagine this in my head. It just seems ridiculous. 
They pull an unconscious George out of the pool and bring her inside. Diana is having a freak out about a wet person on her sofa and she doesn't seem concerned about the burned dress. George wakes up and Brent offers to take her to the hospital to get checked out. Nancy takes a look at the dress and just like the bag and the vault, there seems to be no source of where the fire came from. So someone's really good at hiding how a fire is started. Later that evening, leaving George at the hospital, Nancy returns to the party and it's still in full swing. She goes to check on the dresses, which by the way are kept in an unlocked room only to find both are gone. So I guess that means that the thief is at the party. Could have Brent gone up and taken them while everyone was busy fussing over George? I feel like Brent is the main suspect or the person responsible for all this, but he's too much of a main character. And in these books, it's always someone that we don't expect. Now, it wouldn't be a Nancy Drew book if she didn't hear some shuffling outside of the door. She peeks outside and it's none other than the young bearded man she saw coming out of the antique shop. He's got sandy hair and blue-green eyes and, of course, he's gorgeous because who isn't gorgeous in the world of Nancy Drew? His name is Chad and he was the one that rescued George. It was the reason why he was sneaking around. That seems like a good enough excuse, but it's strange that Nancy didn't recognize him when he rescued George from the pool. He wants to make sure that she's okay and says that he will give her a call. The next day, he does just that, and the girls are gushing over the fact that Nancy said he's gorgeous. Chad asks George out on a date. Well, George is quite the popular one lately. Two dates with two hot guys in a matter of two books. You go, girl. And Nancy wants her to go on this date so she can keep an eye on him and get to know him more. Oh, and by the way, Diana finally called the police about the dresses. They needed to go to the police for insurance purposes. So I guess the party had already happened and it was okay for to call them now. Nancy, Bess and George discuss the case and Nancy takes Brent off the suspect list because he has no motive. Hmm, how about that small issue of a gambling addiction or did Nancy just let that one slide? Well, we don't know if he's addicted or not. We just know that he's a playboy gambler, whatever a playboy gambler is meant to be. Does that mean like a sophisticated flirty one? I don't know. As for Diana and Amanda, they both have plenty of money, so there's no motive there either. Preston Talbot calls and tells her that Elaine Ellsworth wants to talk to Nancy about the flame because her company insured it. Nancy is confused on how she found out about the arson so fast and on a Sunday night. That's a good point. Like, how did this Elaine woman find out that the dress went up in flames as well? It's crazy. Um, I don't know. I guess she's got people working on the inside. Or maybe Diana and Amanda told her. Who knows? It's really suspicious, though. Supposedly, though, Eileen just has a thing for getting on arson cases quickly. Seems sus, but I'll let it slide. Elaine's really rude, and she finds it weird Nancy gets involved on a second arson case while investigating the initial attack. No, Elaine, it's because both cases are connected. Obviously, they're both Napoleon. Elaine learns that Nancy is a detective and threatens her about withholding information. This woman is R-U-D-E rude. I hate how Nancy has to prove herself to everybody all the time. It's time to visit the lady who hates Napoleon. She lives on a houseboat at Marina del Rey, which actually blows my mind because I actually watched a video last night about someone who lives on a houseboat at Marina del Rey. What a weird coincidence. The lady's name is Professor Nicole Rosehead. She's an older grey-haired lady who is surrounded by cats. 
After introductions are made, Nancy informs her that Amanda told her to speak to her and then she gets mad. Amanda, that lying wretch. Amanda is the one who should be touched. She stole the Napoleon. It was mine. (laughs) What is with the word wretch? Do people still use that word these days or is it just a thing for older people? This lady has a right to be mad. She's French herself and loves Napoleon and was very angry when Amanda offered double the price for the manuscript and stopped Nicole from purchasing it herself. Nicole is a book lover and would have kept great care of the manuscript. So why would Amanda lie? This also seems a bit sus. She did say she was mad about the book burning because she would have sold it for twice of what the insurance paid out. Or maybe Nicole is also lying. Who really knows? Next stop is Kincaid Studios and Nancy wants to speak to Brent about the shake. Brent is filming an explosion scene when they arrive and explains to Nancy how it's all fake and an illusion. I guess that means we know that he knows how to set fires and create smoke without any trace. So I'm still thinking it's Brent. They're in Hollywood, of course, so Brent organizes a behind-the-scenes tour and Bess is excited because a favorite singer of hers is in the building. His name is Michael Seaton and it appears he is just a fictional singer, not an actual real celebrity from back in the 80s. While Bess and George are on the tour, Nancy asks Brent if he does explosion scenes like that often and he's like, yeah, I film them, but I don't know how they work. Okay, Brent, nice cover up, but that does mean somebody in the studio knows how it works and they could be the suspect unless you're lying about not knowing how they work. We learn that the Sheikh was very angry about losing the miniature Napoleon portrait and Brent says that he feels like he should have just taken the cash, but he liked the painting much more and didn't need the cash. I still feel like Brent is lying about his money situation. Anyway, if asked if the shake was angry enough to do something about the portrait, Brent said the note was possible, but he wouldn't have burnt it. Nancy says she'll talk to him despite no connection to the other case. She then asks Brent about the dress, and he had no clue about that either, and is confused just as much as the insurance guys are about how it started. I don't know, Brent, maybe one of your stagehands, unless you're lying. I don't know. I think, I really, really think it's Brent. It has to be. Brent is still insistent that it's Peter Wellington that's behind it all. Bess returns and she's overjoyed for getting the singer's autograph. Then Brent offers the girls access to the Kincaid costume department in case they need an outfit for a gala at the hotel later that week. Costumes. A fake dress that looks like a real dress, a movie set, fake explosions. I think somebody involved at Kincaid Studios is responsible for this. It just, there's too many clues in one place. Nancy has another meeting with Elaine, who claims that Mr. Tolbert is the arsonist because the hotel is bleeding money and that the cash receipts in there weren't actually real, they were just fake so they could get insurance money and try and save the hotel Um, and also the extortion note was set on hotel stationery which Mr. Talbot has easy access to and so does Brent since he's staying at the hotel just because it's on hotel stationery that's like easy to get anyone could get that that's a stupid theory Elaine sorry also why would Mr. Talbot hire Nancy who he knows is a good detective to catch him anyway The girls head off to see the shake. They drive through the winding roads of Malibu and we all know what happens when Nancy drives on winding roads, don't we? I have a feeling the brakes are going to fail, but that might just be me. 
The girls are taking in the view and Bess is slightly nervous about how steep the cliff is, which is understandable. I feel the same when I'm driving on cliffy, windy roads. Suddenly, a blue sports car with two people in it, one in a Dracula mask, pulls up besides Nancy and tosses a thick black liquid all over the windscreen. Blinding Nancy, she heads into a hairpin turn and George screams, Watch out, we're going over the cliff. All right. I was wrong. I was expecting a brake failure, but getting blinded by Dracula is much more exciting. <laughs> what a what a nice change of uh, car accident scene, I guess. <laughs> Nancy manages to gain control of the car and saves them all. That is such a scary incident. The girls always seem to recover quickly, though. My heart just beats hard for at least 10 minutes after simply breaking too hard, whereas these girls just go about their merry way. <laughs> Oh, fun fact. This car had a car phone. Do you remember them? Well, I think we had one briefly in the past, but yeah, this was a blast from the past. I'd completely forgotten all about car phones. Mr. Talbot calls, the insurance company is suspicious of the cash receipts and has taken the vault clerk in for questioning. Mr. Talbot, as usual, is scared of the info, getting into the paper and him losing everything. Trouble seems to follow this guy around, but don't worry, Mr. Talbot, Nancy will solve the case. They arrive at the Sheik's house, or should I say mansion, and it is beautiful. It's described as palladial and overlooks the ocean. The front courtyard, cooled by tall palms and filled with blooming flowers, has a waterfall that bubbles down over rocks into a pool. Oh my goodness, that sounds like paradise. I want to live in this mansion. (laughs) Sheikh, can I please move in? Walking through the mansion to see the sheikh, they observe all the the expensive artwork and artifacts. In fact, the sheikh actually owns the Empress Josephine's crown. He casually got it for his wife to wear on their wedding day. Yep, that's cool. Just get some random old artifact and put it on your wife's head for their wedding day, if only. (laughs) They finally reach the sheikh's office and it is something else. It's a 10-foot high, double doors, and they open to reveal a spacious pillared room with gold carpet running the length of the floor. On the far side of the room, behind a carved wooden writing table, sat a dark-haired man of middle height wearing a beautifully tailored business suit. He couldn't be more than 30, Nancy thought, but he looked like a king. So yeah, that was like a description of the sheikh's room, and yeah, he's quite young. Nancy is super intimidated, but the sheikh puts her at ease, and he tells her while his taste is over the top and luxurious, he does not carry the sins of extortion and arson and he definitely did not destroy the painting. The sheikh's wife appears and tells the sheikh that the dress has arrived and the sheikh extends an invitation for the girls to see the dress. Who should appear but a beautiful young woman wearing the crown and the empress's flame? Remember how both the gowns at Diane's house seemed fake? Well, maybe they were and maybe this is actually the real deal. The sheikh claims he had purchased it for his movie star soon-to-be wife Sheila Sessions to wear alongside the crown at their wedding, purchased of none other than Peter Wellington. What a twist. It turns out that the sheikh didn't buy it directly from Peter, but by his secretary. Uh, what secretary? Uh, and that the dress was delivered via a courier company called Security Unlimited. This sounds like some sort of scam. I wonder if this dress could be the real one or one of the fakes. This case just got juicy. They all head to visit Peter Wellington again, but he's out to lunch, so they people watch on Venice Beach. 
George sees Chad and he smiles and then panics as a pot plant from the balcony above falls and almost hits George. The girls think it was the same person that ran them off the road. Seems weird, but maybe. It's like, why would this random person be in Venice and in the right place in the right time to push a pot plant off a balcony onto George's head? It seems ridiculous. Chad invites them to go on his boat later that afternoon and they agree. Nancy warns George about getting caught up on Chad because he's a suspect. Uh, Peter returns from lunch and he's oblivious that the flame was destroyed. Peter tells the girls he has no secretary and was surprised Diana sold the dress to the sheikh because her uncle forbids it. This is enough for Nancy to consider Peter no longer a suspect. She also thinks Chad might have been listening to the conversation as she saw him run off. The girls head to Marina Del Rey to spend the day with Chad on his boat. But before they go and see Chad, Nancy wants to speak to the professor again. They arrive at the boat to see her cats looking sad and a mess of a living room and the professor's blurs in the corner has a smear of blood on it. The girls call the police and let them handle it, which is weird. Usually Nancy would be straight on it, but this time Nancy is just handballing it to the police. Bess, bless her heart, feeds the kitties. Nancy learns nothing during the boat ride with Chad except that George was falling for him. It sure would have been a nice day despite not learning anything though, Nancy, so I would have liked to have gone around the water on the Pacific Ocean on a boat. Sounds like a great afternoon. (laughs) Back at Diana's and wanting to know more information about the display cases, Diana tells Nancy one of the servants probably copied a key. Diana is tired from answering questions because Aline's been bothering her with questions too. Suddenly, Amanda arrears interrupting the questioning session. I feel like Nancy's not telling us something. I think Nancy believes Amanda might be responsible. How or why, I don't know, but maybe Nancy knows and she's just, yeah, not sharing it. And it's annoying when she doesn't share the facts with us and we're like meant to solve things on our own and then she spills her secrets at the end. It's like, I like to solve the mystery as we go along. Frustrated by not learning anything from Diana, Nancy heads back to her hotel room and all of a sudden, Three men, including the Sheikh's secretary, barge into Nancy's hotel room and drag her to the Sheikh's mansion. Nancy tells Bess and George to call the police if she's not back by night time. What's happened? It turns out that Aline, the nosy insurance investigator, <laughs> nosy, she's an investigator, she has to be nosy, come on. <laughs> anyway, the, Aline's gone to the Sheikh's house and confiscated the dress's evidence and the Sheikh is unhappy. He needs the dress for the wedding. Nancy offers to get a substitute made. Gosh, there's going to be so many copies of this dress going around the place. George receives some roses and Nancy is unhappy and thinks that it might be Chad that had told Eileen that the Sheikh brought the dress as he was eavesdropping on her conversation with Peter Wellington. Either that or Peter Wellington told him. How else would Eileen know about their dress? But what's Chad got to do with Eileen? There seem why would I don't know, why would Chad be talking to Eileen? That just seems like a weird, weird coincidence. Maybe they're working together. George has a nightmare about being on fire again and the nightmare helps her remember that it was the brooch that started the fire and that the brooch is probably at the bottom of Diana's pool. Just thinking, if it's not at the bottom of pool and Chad was the one that rescued her, maybe he grabbed it at the same time. I wonder if Chad has connections to Kincaid Studios and knows how to set up fake explosives. And where is the professor? So many questions. It's like, oh, yeah, she's gone. There's blood on her shirt. Let's just 
call the police. <laughs> anyway, Nancy calls Amanda and organizes to get a replacement dress. Unfortunately, Amanda can't find the dressmaker's number and they are out of town. Nancy isn't happier with that and calls the Kincaid costume department herself. And just as a side note, while Nancy's making all these phone calls, Bess is dreaming about croissants. Even though croissants are mostly butter, I love spreading more butter on them. I love butter so much. There's no such thing as too much butter. Anyway, Nancy gets in contact with the costume department and the seamstress is quite helpful and tells Nancy that he's already made two copies of the flame this week. He made the one that Amanda organized, you remember the replica, and that he also made another one that was ordered over the phone and then picked up by a courier. So I guess that means the Sheik's copy of the dress was a fake. The Sheik paid $250 million for that, so someone made a nice little profit. Also, why did Amanda say the person was out of town? I guess she didn't want Nancy to know about the second dress getting made. Amanda was sad that her manuscript was destroyed and insured for less than what it was worth, which is also very interesting. Amanda's right now my number one suspect, but so is Brent. I just don't have a motive for Brent. How would Amanda access the notepaper though? I'm stumped, unless they're working together and she asked Brent for some hotel stationery. Nancy goes to visit Security Unlimited Courier Company the next day and yields nothing. And then next, we get a huge break in the case. Professor Nicole Ringard, remember the lady that lives on the boat, is calling from San Francisco. A dealer in San Francisco knew the professor was interested in the manuscript, and when he saw it on the black market, he snapped it up for her. I wonder why the professor didn't sail to San Francisco. Maybe it takes too long, or maybe houseboats can't sail that far. I clearly need to learn more about houseboats. How far can houseboats sail? Maybe it's an actual houseboat, not like a yacht or something. Okay, all this really points to Amanda, but I'm not sure how exactly she did it all and why. I mean, we know that she's got friends in the costume department at Kincaid, so she could have easily got a fake dress, but it means she probably knows other people there who know special fire effects. Nancy gets the professor to fax her copies of a couple of pages of the manuscript. Uh, so confusing not only myself, but Bess and George, Nancy says, it's beginning to look as though the manuscript that was burned was a copy, and that suggests the portrait and the gown might have been copies too, burned to cover the fifth of the real thing. Okay, I'm still confused, but that makes sense. But how and why? And who has connection to all three places, especially the vault fire? This is the one that's throwing me off. It's Amanda. Yes, she's got access to the dress and she's got access to the... Um, manuscript but not the vault have i missed how amanda is connected to the hotel or at least the sheik in order to get a copy of the real portrait of napoleon hmm nancy removes the sheik and the professor from the suspect list peter wellington may still be a suspect he could have arranged to have the item stolen and arranged copies yeah i'm not buying that theory nancy sorry uh, Chad is also on the suspect list, much to George's heartbreak. However, Nancy explains, We know that Chad was at the scene when the gown was burned. We know that he's talked with Mr. Wellington. It's entirely possible that he's masterminded this whole thing and that Mr. Wellington is in it with him. In fact, Peter Wellington might even be helping dispose of the stolen originals. Um, I guess that makes sense, but what about Brent? I guess they forgot all about him. 
The girls break into Chad's house and boy, oh boy, is it incriminating. He's got newspaper clippings about Nancy Drew, chemistry equipment and books about Napoleon and hotel stationery. Oh gosh, this all looks really incriminating, but I don't know why he would be burning all the things. The next stop is Diana's backyard. The brooch was not in the pool, but they found it underneath the balcony where George fell. And from the looks of it, it looked like a chemical was in the brooch and it interacted with another chemical to cause the flames, which is interesting because there was no trace of anything in the vault or in Nancy's bag. Maybe that was to throw us off. I don't even know. But why would they leave traces of flames and like a device on the dress, but not anywhere else? All of a sudden, Diana appears on the balcony above them. She must have heard them. They probably were making lots of noise. Who's there? She yells. And from the other side of the pool, Chad appears with a gun and says, come out or I'll shoot. Oh no, poor George falling in love with the bad guy. That's usually Bess's job. Thankfully, the girls managed to get away without him seeing them. Nancy devises a scheme that night in order to catch Chad at the costume party the following day. We, dear readers, are left out. I hate that it happens all the time. But the story will unfold mid-dangerous situation, I'm sure, like it always does, like Nancy has a plan, and then when she catches the bad guys, we'll hear all about it. Nancy calls the Sheikh and the Sheikh reluctantly agrees to be a part of the plan as a thank you to Nancy for getting another dress so quickly. His part of the plan involves delivering some packages to Nancy. Just as the girls are heading out to the studio to pick up their costumes for the party that evening, Amanda calls to ensure that they are all attending. Hmm, maybe Amanda and Chad are working together. I don't know. This is... I still think it's Brent. I can see how it would be Amanda as well because she knew that the real one wasn't burnt. Uh, at, at the studio, they all choose their costumes. George's Princess Leia, which I could totally pitch George in and she would be looking great. Bess is the sultry Marilyn Monroe and Nancy grabs a fake ermine cape and a gold crown with pearls. I guess she's going as some sort of royal figure, Josephine perhaps? The party starts and George and Bess are tasked with getting Chad to Mr. Talbot's office while Nancy wrangles Brent, who is dressed as a cowboy villain all in black. Nancy is worried that his gun looks too real. I guess they are meant to look real in the movies and it's just a prop from the costume department. I have a feeling that Nancy is definitely wearing Josephine's dress underneath her cloak because she's keeping it well hidden underneath and like the book keeps saying she's like pulling her cloak tight. A friend of Brent joins Nancy and Brent and begins gossiping about the destroyed artworks. We learn that Diana and Amanda are in a dire financial situation. Amanda's is due to horrible investments and Diana's spending money she doesn't have. Guess her uncle's money is all used. Boom, there is motive right there. But, like, Diana... Okay, Diana, yes, she's not allowed to sell her uncle's thing, so maybe she's burning. I don't know. I don't think Diana's smart enough for that. Amanda, why didn't she just sell the book for double what it was worth instead of getting a fake one burnt? I don't know. Come on, please explain it, Nancy. We're suddenly joined by another friend of Brent's, and it appears that Brent has been lying. Turns out he's a master of special effects. Just like I had said, oh my gosh, I was right, it was Brent. 
Nancy all of a sudden realizes that Diane, Amanda and Brent have been working together all along and then she confronts him. He admits it and then points his gun at Nancy. Okay, how? I want an explanation. I still don't understand. And also, what about all the evidence that we saw in Chad's house? Where does Chad come into this? I guess it's the end of the book and we're going to find out and something bad's going to happen and they're all going to be in a dangerous situation while a full confession is made. So... Brent leads Nancy down to the loading dock and there is Bess, George and Chad being held at gunpoint. Amanda is dressed up as Catwoman and Diane is dressed up as Snow White. Down in the loading dock, Nancy reveals that she is in fact wearing the real Empress's frame and the trio gasp and then Nancy hands them copies of the manuscript, proving that it was only copies of both the dress and the manuscript that had been destroyed. So it turns out that the secret device used to destroy the copies was nitrate plastic, which burns itself. And Brett glo- Brent rather gloats about the fact that he's so good at setting up fake fires. And I also feel like us and detectives really should have known about such a thing, but I'll let that slide. I mean, you're investigating us and how can you not know of a simple detonation device that eats itself up? I think that would have been your That seems like the biggest oversight. I'm so frustrated. Diana is just screaming her innocence, saying that Amanda and Brent forced her to go along with the plan, and she only went along with the plan because she needed money. Um, And as for the second fake dress, they sold that to the Sheik via the scam that made it look like it was from Peter Wellington. So if it was caught to be a fake, the Sheik would blame Peter. Okay, that's a very flawed plan because obviously – he's going to realize that it's fake and then he's going to blame Peter and then Peter will be like, yeah, no, I know nothing about it. And then who's going to be the next person? Of course, they're going to go to Amanda and Diane. Despite the book just saying that Diane uh, and Amanda thought that Nancy was wearing the real Empress's flame, it turns out it's actually in safekeeping at Diana and Amanda's apartment. And as for the Napoleon painting, Brent still has that, but he doesn't really care about it. He doesn't need money, like he keeps saying. He only joined in on the plan to help Amanda get some money and the fact that if he took part, he could do his favorite hobby, which is arson. We learned that it was Amanda and Diane that caused the incident on the cliff and Diana is still whimpering, saying she was forced to go along with the plan because she needed money. I really didn't expect all three of them to be a part of it, but still, where does Chad come into this? He's just stayed silent throughout the whole thing. Suddenly, Brent and Amanda tie the four of them up and tell them to get into a dumpster. They do so, and it's filled with old rolls of carpet and some broken bottles. Thankfully, no trash, because that wouldn't be very pleasant. Diana and Amanda head back to the party and Brent throws a burning canister into the dumpster. The four are going to burn to death. Thankfully, Nancy manages to cut the ropes with the broken bottles and they all escape just before the canister explodes and phosphorus causes the dumpster to also explode. Everyone is safe and the case is solved. So basically, it was all an insurance scam to get money because Amanda wanted money. We don't know why she wanted money. We don't know why Brent is helping her. And I guess Diana just went along with it because she also needed money. I didn't really like how quickly the case like kind of solved itself. However, what about Chad? It turns out that Chad is an insurance investigator working for Elaine. 
So that kind of explains the Napoleon literature. He wanted to know more about it. He's got Nancy Drew's case clippings because he wanted to know more about Nancy. And the chemical equipment is because he was testing stuff to figure out how the fires were set. Okay, that makes sense. I'm just glad that George didn't get involved with a bad guy. What a case. I guess I was correct about Brent all along, that he worked at the studio and even though he said he didn't know how to do special effects, he was lying. It's always one lie that catches people out. As for the dress that Nancy's wearing, it's the replacement that she organized for the shake. She needs to get it back to him, but it's ruined from being in the fire. And that's not a good thing because the shake's wedding is today. So what do they do? They convince Aline and Chad to let the sheikh's future wife wear the real one. And I guess it's only fair. He did pay $250 million for it. So let her wear it for the wedding and then you can take it back for your investigation and then hopefully give it back to the sheikh. The girls attend the lavish wedding of the sheikh and his wife and afterwards they head to the airport. Before Nancy gets on the plane, staff of the sheikh present her with a ruby pendant as a gift of gratitude. Well, that's probably worth a million dollars, yet we'll never hear of this ruby necklace again. Is that how Nancy funds her lavish lifestyle? Did she actually just sell this necklace? (laughs) That's one mystery we need to solve (laughs) because we don't know how Nancy affords her lifestyle except for daddy's credit card. They all jump on their Victory Airlines flight and head home the end. How did you go, detective? Did you manage to solve this case? I actually felt as though I solved it right from the start, even though that Chad evidence was really, really threw me off for a bit and I just couldn't figure out how Chad fit into it. But I like the explanation that he was an insurance investigator that made everything make sense. Seems weird that Brent just went along with the ride to help Amanda out. They went to uni together, which I didn't mention, but are they lovers? Are they friends? Like, why is he just helping out this random woman with insurance fraud? I don't know. I I give it a three. Uh, They were in Los Angeles. It wasn't very descriptive, not like it was descriptive when they were in Hawaii and in New York City. So, yeah. As for near-death experiences, there was the car almost going over the cliff after oil was spilt on the windscreen, and there was also the dumpster fire, a lot like 2020, am I right? There was also the bomb incident in the handbag. I don't know if that can count. I don't think it should, like no one almost died. I was right though, Brent did place it there. I'm really, really dang proud of my detective work in this case. How did you go detective? I'd love to know. Let me know on Instagram at Nancy Drew Podcast. There was also the incident of George's dress catching fire and then her falling in the pool. However, we're only going to count the experiences where Nancy was involved. So in this book, it's two, making a grand total of 62. I don't think George and Chad kissed in this book, so I'm not going to add another to George's tally. So the tally stays at George 3 with Ned and Nancy and Bess all on four. I found it crazy that there was two books that didn't take place in River Heights, but the next book, case number 27, Most Likely to Die, definitely does take place in River Heights. And uh, I haven't read the book yet, but Most Likely to Die kind of seems like a superlative that you get in high school. So maybe it's like a high school thing. Hmm, I guess we'll see. (laughs) What did you think of the book, Detective? I'd love to hear from you. You can email me hello at nancydrewpodcast.com 
Or you can leave a comment on the Instagram post for this episode at Nancy Drew Podcast. Also, if you enjoy this episode, I'd love it if you could leave me a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps me out a lot. Anyway, thank you for listening, Detective. I'll see you next time for case number 27, Most Likely to Die. Bye, Detective.